Early Christianity and the Gospel of Mary, Karen L. King, Ph.D. Reprinted by permission of Polbridge Press from pages 3 to 6 of The Gospel of Mary of Magdala by Karen L. King, 2003. In this excerpt from her groundbreaking book, The Gospel of Mary of Magdala, Jesus and the First Woman Apostle, Karen King, Ph.D., Brown University, Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School, shares a startling view of Jesus and Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus singled out for special teachings and to whom he revealed deep theological insights. Few people today are acquainted with the Gospel of Mary. Written early in the second century of the Common Era, it disappeared for over 1,500 years until a single, fragmentary copy in Coptic translation came to light in the late 19th century. Although details of the discovery itself are obscure, we do know that the 5th century manuscript in which it was inscribed was purchased in Cairo by Karl Reinhardt and brought to Berlin in 1896. Two additional fragments in Greek have come to light in the 20th century. Yet still no complete copy of the Gospel of Mary is known. Fewer than eight pages of the ancient papyrus text survive, which means that about half of the Gospel of Mary is lost to us, perhaps forever. Yet these scant pages provide an intriguing glimpse into a kind of Christianity lost for almost 1,500 years. This astonishingly brief narrative presents a radical interpretation of Jesus' teachings as a path to inner spiritual knowledge. It rejects his suffering and death as the path to eternal life. It exposes the erroneous view that Mary of Magdala was a prostitute for what it is a piece of theological fiction. It presents the most straightforward and convincing argument in any early Christian writing for the legitimacy of women's leadership. It offers a sharp critique of illegitimate power and a utopian vision of spiritual perfection. It challenges our rather romantic views about the harmony and unanimity of the first Christians, and it asks us to rethink the basis for church authority, all written in the name of a woman. The story of the Gospel of Mary is a simple one. Since the first six pages are lost, the Gospel opens in the middle of a scene portraying a discussion between the Savior and his disciples set after the resurrection. The Savior is answering their questions about the end of the material world and the nature of sin. He teaches them that at present all things, whether material or spiritual, are interwoven with each other. In the end, that will not be so. Each nature will return to its own root, its own original state and destiny. But meanwhile, the nature of sin is tied to the nature of life 
in this mixed world. People sin because they do not recognize their own spiritual nature and, instead, love the lower nature that deceives them and leads to disease and death. Salvation is achieved by discovering within oneself the true spiritual nature of humanity and overcoming the deceptive entrapments of the bodily passions and the world. The Savior concludes this teaching with a warning against those who would delude the disciples into following some heroic leader or a set of rules and laws. Instead, they are to seek the child of true humanity within themselves and gain inward peace. After commissioning them to go forth and preach the gospel, the Savior departs. But the disciples do not go out joyfully to preach the gospel. Instead, controversy erupts. All the disciples except Mary have failed to comprehend the Savior's teachings. Rather than seek peace within, they are distraught, frightened that if they follow his commission to preach the gospel, they might share his agonizing fate. Mary steps in and comforts them, and, at Peter's request, relates teaching unknown to them that she had received from the Savior in a vision. The Savior had explained to her the nature of prophecy and the rise of the soul to its final rest, describing how to win the battle against the wicked, illegitimate powers, that seek to keep the soul entrapped in the world and ignorant of its true spiritual nature. But as she finishes her account, two of the disciples quite unexpectedly challenge her. Andrew objects that her teaching is strange, and he refuses to believe that it came from the Savior. Peter goes further, denying that Jesus would ever have given this kind of advanced teaching to a woman, or that Jesus could possibly have preferred her to them. Apparently, when he asked her to speak, Peter had not expected such elevated teaching, and now he questions her character, implying that she has lied about having received special teaching in order to increase her stature among the disciples. Severely taken aback, Mary begins to cry at Peter's accusation. Levi comes quickly to her defense, pointing out to Peter that he is a notorious hothead and now he is treating Mary as though she were the enemy. We should be ashamed of ourselves, he admonishes them all. Instead of arguing among ourselves, we should go out and preach the gospel as the Savior commanded us. The story ends here, but the controversy is far from resolved. Andrew and Peter, at least, and likely the other fearful disciples as well, have not understood the Savior's teaching and are offended by Jesus' apparent preference of a woman over them. Their limited understanding and false pride make it impossible for them to comprehend the truth of the Savior's teaching. The reader must both wonder and worry what kind of gospel such proud and ignorant disciples will preach. 
How are we to understand this story? It is at once reminiscent of the New Testament Gospels and yet clearly different from them. The Gospels' characters, the Savior, Mary, Peter, Andrew, and Levi, are familiar to those acquainted with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, too, is the theological language of gospel and kingdom, as well as such sayings of Jesus as, Those who seek will find, or Anyone with two ears should listen. And the New Testament gospels and Acts repeatedly mention the appearance of Jesus to his disciples after the resurrection. Yet it is also clear that the story of the Gospel of Mary differs in significant respects. For example, after Jesus commissions the disciples, they do not go out joyfully to preach the Gospel, as they do in Matthew. Instead, they weep, fearing for their lives. Some of the teachings also seem shocking coming from Jesus, especially his assertion that there is no such thing as sin. Modern readers may well find themselves sympathizing with Andrew's assessment that these teachings are strange ideas. The Gospel of Mary was written when Christianity, still in its nascent stages, was made up of communities widely dispersed around the eastern Mediterranean, communities which were often relatively isolated from one another and probably each small enough to meet in someone's home without attracting too much notice. Although writings appeared early, especially letters addressing the concerns of local churches, collections containing Jesus' sayings, and narratives interpreting his death and resurrection, oral practices dominated the lives of early Christians. Preaching, teaching, and rituals of table fellowship and baptism were the core of the Christian experience. What written documents they had served, at most, as supplemental guides to preaching and practice. Nor can we assume that the various churches all possessed the same documents. After all, these are the people who wrote the first Christian literature. Christoph Markscheis suggests that we have lost 85% of Christian literature from the first two centuries, and that includes only the literature we know about. Surely there must be even more, for the discovery of texts like the Gospel of Mary came as a complete surprise. We have to be careful that we don't suppose it is possible to reconstruct the whole of early Christian history and practice out of the few surviving texts that remain. Our picture will always be partial, not only because so much is lost, but because early Christian practices were so little tied to durable writing. Partly as a consequence of their independent development and differing situations, these churches sometimes diverged widely in their perspectives on essential elements of Christian belief and practice. Such basic issues as the content and meaning of Jesus' teachings, the nature of salvation, 
the value of prophetic authority, and the roles of women and slaves came under intense debate. Early Christians proposed and experimented with competing visions of ideal community. It is important to remember, too, that these first Christians had no New Testament, no Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed, no commonly established church order or chain of authority, no church buildings, and indeed no single understanding of Jesus. All of the elements we might consider to be essential to define Christianity did not yet exist. Far from being starting points, the Nicene Creed and the New Testament were the end products of these debates and disputes. They represent the distillation of experience and experimentation, and not a small amount of strife and struggle. All early Christian literature bears traces of these controversies. The earliest surviving documents of Christianity, the letters of Paul, show that considerable difference of opinion existed about such issues as circumcision and the Jewish food laws, or the relative value of spiritual gifts. These and other such contentious issues as whether the resurrection was physical or spiritual were stimulating theological conversations and causing rifts within and among Christian groups. By the time of the Gospel of Mary, these discussions were becoming increasingly nuanced and more polarized. History, as we know, is written by the winners. In the case of early Christianity, this has meant that many voices in these debates were silenced through repression or neglect. The Gospel of Mary, along with other newly discovered works from the earliest Christian period, increases our knowledge of the enormous diversity and dynamic character of the processes by which Christianity was shaped. 